Hello, and welcome to the second episode in this series of podcasts from the London Review of Books with Emily Wilson. My name is Thomas Jones, and I'm an editor at the LRB. Emily Wilson is Professor of Classical Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. Hello, Emily, and thank you very much for joining me again. Hello, Tom. Last time in our first episode, we talked about Homer's Iliad. And in case anyone listening hasn't heard that yet, I would encourage you to go back and listen to it first. And today we're moving on, predictably enough, to the Odyssey. Emily's translation of the Odyssey came out in 2017, and she's currently working on a translation of the Iliad. Both poems are attributed to Homer, whoever he, she or they might have been. Both poems consist of several thousand lines of dactylic hexameter, 15,000 in the case of the Iliad, around 12,000 for the Odyssey, conventionally divided into 24 books. Both poems tell stories from the Trojan War. Both are concerned with gods and heroes. But there are huge differences between them as well, aren't there? Or to put that another way, the Odyssey isn't exactly a sequel to the Iliad. They're very different poems. They're very different in their mood and in their setting. The Odyssey in its setting spreads all over the Mediterranean world and even beyond into these sort of fantastical and mythological landscapes, Um, whereas the Iliad is very much confined to these claustrophobic spaces of the city, the battlefield, the ships, the tents. So the Odyssey is in many ways a much more expansive poem in its vision of what the world is and what kinds of communities um, Greek speakers can encounter and including cultural difference and multiculturalism and colonialism in, in, a, in a very expansive both narrative form and character ranges from enslaved people to goddesses. So probably the first thing that comes to mind when most people think of the Odyssey is the voyage of Odysseus and his encounters with the Cyclops and the Sirens Circe, the Lotus Eaters, Scylla and Charybdis, and so on. But those adventures take up only four of the poem's 24 books, don't they? They do. I think people who read the whole Odyssey, having only read the kids' retellings, are often very, very surprised by how little of it is the stuff they've already been prepared for, the magical encounters, which are all told as inset first-person narration by Odysseus himself, Um, telling his traveller's tales to one of his many hosts on the journey back to Ithaca. The vast majority of the poem is not like that at all in its level of realism. In the first four books, we get the the journey of Odysseus' son, Telemachus, which is a kind of small and in some ways kind of futile journey to go visit his father's old war buddies and try and find out some news about his long lost father. He doesn't find out any news and he almost gets murdered on the way back. Um, then we have the inset narrative of Odysseus's journeys. And then the whole of the second half of the poem is Odysseus's gradual um, recovering of his position back on Ithaca. So in a way, it's a very odd structure. And I think it's very interesting as a, as a narrative structure. And it's also very interesting in what it says about what a nostos or homecoming journey really is. Very little of it is, is the geographical travelling. And a whole lot of it is the building or rebuilding of relationships, both with those Odysseus is going to be with in the future and also those he feels he needs to kill. And also up to point in those he meets along the way, because his journey home from Troy famously takes 10 years. It's as long as the war. There's 10 years of war, 10 years for him to get home. But something like nine of those years, he's not actually traveling. He's, he's with Calypso, on her island. He's with the Calypso for Very seven years and then another home. year with Circe. So seven. eight out of the ten years are shacked yeah. up with these wonderful goddesses. So it's, it's not, not as if he's actually been shipwrecked for a full ten years. Most of the time he's not being shipwrecked and actually living, living the life. 
<laughs> because he's he's a, so he's introduced at the beginning of the poem. He's when it opens, he's Calypso's prisoner or captive, or so the goddess Athena describes him. Although it's not quite clear how captive he is, he's not exactly an unwilling captive of Calypso. Well, he is now unwilling. I mean, what we're told is that he no longer wants to be there. And that um, that phrase, no longer, is, of course, a very resonant one because it suggests that at some earlier point, and we don't exactly know when, he was willing to be there. But at some point when the narrative of the poem begins, despite um, still spending his nights and days with Calypso, he's also spending a great deal of time sitting on the beach, gazing out at the sea and longing to see even the smoke that rises from his homeland, Ithaca. And I think there's a wonderfully resonant absence in that whole evocation of Odysseus's longing for home in book five, which in some ways is where the the poem proper begins with the journey of Odysseus, that we're never actually told why does he long for home? What exactly does that mean to him? Calypso reminds him of just how, in some ways, how foolish that decision is. He's giving up the opportunity to be immortal and to stay with her forever, which is on offer. And instead, he wants to undertake a very, very dangerous and painful journey, which will involve the loss of all the wealth that he gathered in Troy and all the men that he took took with him to go back to an island where suitors are besieging his, his household and trying to marry his wife and where he's going to die. And he chooses that all the same. Yeah, so should we listen to that exchange between Calypso and, and Odysseus? Yes, so this is from book five and the goddess is Calypso who speaks first. The goddess queen began. Odysseus, son of Laertes, blessed by Zeus, your plans are always changing. Do you really want to go back to that home you love so much? Well then, goodbye. But if you understand how glutted you will be with suffering before you reach your home, you would stay here with me and be immortal, though you might still wish to see that wife you always pine for. And anyway, I know my body is better than hers is. I am taller too. Mortals can never rival the immortals in beauty. So Odysseus, with tact, said, Do not be enraged at me, great goddess. You are quite right. I know my modest wife, Penelope, could never match your beauty. She is a human. You are deathless, ageless. But even so, I want to go back home and every day I hope that day will come. If some god strikes me on the wine-dark sea, I will endure it. By now I am used to suffering. I have gone through so much at sea and in the war. Let this come too. The sun went down and brought the darkness on. They went inside the hollow cave and took the pleasure of their love, held close together. So he doesn't doesn't really give... As you said, he doesn't really give an adequate answer to the question of why he wants to go home to Ithaca, does he? It's sort of, well, I've endured so much suffering, I might as well endure a bit more. It's sort of he's giving himself up to fate, or the will is the will of the gods, or it's what he's... Ex- 
sort of expected of him because we know he does, so he knows he has, he has to. to fulfill this part in the narrative and this part in himself. I mean, I think it matters that um, Calypso's name is related to the verb calupto, which means to hide or to veil. And so I think it's a decision to come out of hiding and to become a prominent named self. And part of what's repeatedly at stake in those wandering books is is what what kind of self Odysseus will be and how he will recover some kind of name. Remember that when he encounters the Cyclops, he says his name is nobody. And in a way, his name is nobody with Calypso as well, that he's in this kind of hidden place in a goddess's cave. I mean, we talked about the Iliad last time, but in a way, there were analogues between the choice of Achilles to to rejoin the battle, even though he knows that he will die if he stays at Troy, and the choice of Odysseus to rejoin his human community on Ithaca, even though that means giving up the immortality of Calypso. Because for, in both cases, for these elite warriors to rejoin their community is the only way to to have a name, to have kleos, a word which connotes fame, but it also connotes the being called something by other people. Thanks for listening to this extract from Among the Ancients, a close reading series from the London Review of Books. To listen to the full episodes and all our other close reading series, sign up to our close reading subscription. Go to lrb.me forward slash close readings or click on the link in the description.